Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. At the intersection of comics and social change, this is your host, Ilana Levin, and this is a comics podcast. This is the comics podcast for folks who love a good heist story, and even better when everyone is queer and it's right on your phone. That's right. I've got writer and artist Emmett Hobbs on to talk about his first new series on the Webtoons comics app. It's called Royale the Prussian Blue. When white hat thieves Royale and Damascus were hired to steal the Prussian blue from the world's most powerful art trader, they didn't expect to run into competition. With new foes, mysterious forces, and a political catastrophe on the horizon, this might be their toughest job yet, if they survive. I'm really excited to read the series. I've loved everything I've seen so far. Um, And here's a bit about Emmett. Emmett has been making comics since he was six years old. He drew that girl punk graphic novel, My Riot, which was written by Rick Spears and came out in 2020. He also drew half of Rick and Morty, Ever After, with Sarah Stern, which was written by Sam Maggs. In fact, he's done lots of Rick and Morty in general. <laughs> um, uh, he's contributed short pieces to the first Sweaty Palms anthology and Oh Joy Sex Toy. Royale is his first full-length series as writer and artist. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you on for this. I, um, I've been following you on social media for a while. I don't even know initially how we encountered each other, uh, but I've loved seeing all the progress art you've been posting for other projects. And then this one, and I was like, oh, I need to have you on the show. And you were like, well, I have to have something that, you know, I want things to be farther along when you talk. And then out of the blue, yeah. suddenly it was like, bam, there's this Webtoon series. Yep. Out of the blue. I know that it's not actually that way because you've been working on it forever (laughs) because that's the nature of a project. But I was like, oh, a new thing. Exciting. Yeah. Let's make it happen. Well, the funny thing about that is that it it was sprung on us. We somehow didn't get told when our release date would be. And so I didn't know until the day of that it was dropping. So it was a surprise to us as well. Oh, wow. Well, how does one get started doing a series on Webtoons? I actually was like really not familiar with the app, even though I know it's hugely popular, like how does it all work? Yeah, I wasn't, I didn't know much about it either going into it, but um, it's kind of, there's two ways to do a webtoon. There's webtoon canvas, which is all like self-published web comics. You're not beholden to a schedule or any kind of metrics or anything, and you do it on your own time. Or there's uh, webtoon originals, which are, which is more of like a, a classic contracted publisher approach where you're given um, sort of an advance on your work and then you get a portion of ad revenue sales as well. But that's like way stricter. You have an editor and, and all that. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's like a, it's like a publisher. It just happens to be going up online. Right. With a, and so with I a, got, yeah. I got into that um, because a colleague who is the writer of urban animal, which is another big one they've had going for a while. Um, you know, I had just asked him about what his, what his experience was like, because I was curious and, um, you know, he was just like, okay, we'll put a pitch together and I'll put it in front of my editor. And we did that and pitched. And after one revision, we were greenlit. So it happened really fast. <laughs> was That's awesome. It. I, I, what yeah. I love is that, like, you know, this is a platform that has a lot of sort of, I don't know, manga work mm-hmm. on it, but not exclusively. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, this looks like maybe this is part of diversifying the kind of content that they have. Absolutely. Something that they told us right away was that they wanted to expand into like a different audience. Um, and that Royale was kind of part of that plan. Um, and I, and I see it because yeah, you're right. There's, um, it's a Korean app 
originally. And so, you know, when they made like the, uh, you know, Western or English language version of the app, they carried a lot of those titles over. And so there's, yeah, a very like East Asian foundation of comics there. And Royale is definitely has like some anime um, and manga influences to it, but it's Mm -hmm. pretty Western. Um, You know, it's like Tintin. It's, It's set in Europe, so... And I think it's definitely, I would say it's more boyish. Like it feels more, it's like grimy and weird and (laughs) it's it's not very glamorous or or pretty. Well, I love the aesthetics of it though. I mean, I'm definitely someone who, uh, I need the art to look like something I like or else it's Mm -hmm. really hard for me to make myself read it. Which is not to say that I haven't dragged myself through some fucking Greg Lamb land illustrated (laughs) superhero books before because they have saddled (laughs) awesome writers with the tracer of vivid video porn but um (laughs) but on balance it's so much better when i love the whole package and and i do here and you're you're doing you're doing the art you're doing the writing yeah it's a lot it it is um (laughs) and it's you know this is sort of this vertical scroll format like that that's got to be a different approach for you for you as an artist and i I can see how it's designed for it you know yeah well that's really cool of you to notice because that was um I think that's what really attracted me to the platform was I'm kind of, I have like a problem solver brain. I just like to find problems. I like to seek out problems or create problems and then solve them. Uh, And so, you know, I really like comics and I was just really curious about how moving from, you know, left to right, you know, panels on a page, pages in a book format, like how it would be to go from that to an infinite scroll where there's no pages and like just way more literally infinite room um Mm -hmm. and it was hard i could talk about that for hours and hours though so i won't but (laughs) yes it was a very scientific process for me i have like all of these notes and stuff where i was breaking down the physics of how it changes the eye line and how you have to have different shot choices and that sometimes Mm. the rules are opposite from what they are in paper comics but well, I, I, yeah. I'm very happy to keep geeking out on that kind of thing, but I do want to give my <laughs> listeners a little bit more background because they might not have read the series yet in like yeah. what the it is, but I love talking about form too. So yeah, this is a heist story, which is a genre I really love. Um, and I can definitely see how it lends itself to this kind of structure as well, mm-hmm. uh, especially because like you can binge it really easily. Um, and then there's this like suspense of like, okay, if you're going to see the next one, you've got to buy five coin. I'm like, ah, give, take my money. Yeah. I have to see the next installment. <laughs> um, but yeah, like what's your connection to the, to the heist genre? Like, in, how did you get into that? Well, I, you know, and I haven't given, or I haven't, uh, like done much professional writing yet. And so people don't really know what I'm interested in, but typically I really like this genre heavy stuff that's about crime. And I actually grew up not really having access to those kinds of movies because I had a a very sort of conservative upbringing that had a really strong throttle on media intake. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I missed out on a lot of that stuff. Um, But as an adult, it's started really appealing to me. I, I really like working in genre. I think it's a great way to kind of normalize things by just showing different people doing the same stuff we've been doing in media for decades. Um, yeah. And I think crime is just fun. I love people who misbehave and I love people who are messy <laughs> and who create problems for themselves. And it's just a great platform for that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you mentioned you have a problem solver brain and I'm like, yep, that, that, mm-hmm. that goes along with the high structure. 
But, you know, for me, it's like, there's a reason I don't read a ton of web tunes type stuff, which is often that, like, as much as I'm, I really need my soap opera to be part of the story because mm-hmm. I, I want it. I'm all about the character relationships. I'm not like a coffee shop story mm-hmm. or high school story. Like, that's not as interesting to me usually. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really like genre as well. It's great to see a queer, diverse cast in a sexy, exciting setting, like playing in a dynamic genre. That in and like mm-hmm. it's definitely emotional and there's feelings and there's character in the soap opera, but it's also not just I don't know, it's just like some sad gaze in a corner or something, you know. <laughs> I, I know what you mean, and I like that you know those coffee shop slice of life comics too. But I think that what really excited me about the vertical strip format is that like that being able to draw like action scenes in that format was a really exciting idea to me because there's just so much more freedom. Um, and so that I actually totally wrote Royale with the vertical strip format in mind. Like every mm. kind of thing that's in there, I was like, all right, I'm going to be able to take, uh, like totally exploit the medium or the format. Um, even down to like, we chose the color blue because it's really hard to print that vibrant of a blue in comics and Hank, the colorist, would have never been able to use it otherwise. That's so, so cool. <laughs> yeah, this is this. It is really glowing off the page. Yeah, um, it's it's quite a color. It, I um I started reading the series later at night than I probably should have, and I'm definitely <laughs> feeling like the vividness was like keeping my eyes up on the screen and, and the intensity. Um, yeah, there is. Yeah. There was a comment that we saw that was like, the colors are so bright. They blinded me. It was great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's a moment where you have a character sort of take off their glasses and do a, you know, Jedi mind trick as it were Mm -hmm. on someone. And like the, 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 the the frame is like shake. I mean, you got me dizzy looking at this with with the registration. (laughs) And that's like, yeah, I think it works better on the screen. I don't know how that would have worked on a printed page. There's something about it. I think part of it is that you're, physically moving the pieces as well and so you can get you get this like split second um visual ambiguity or like you know a kind of a a motion blur in your eyes that makes things feel like they're moving for a second and so you can Mm -hmm. you know take advantage of that to confuse people yeah yeah it was like whoa my brain i just looked at it again now and i'm like it still works like even if you know it's coming (laughs) it still it still works that's cool yeah what are some of your favorite heist stories um, and inspirations here. So and this is so funny. My um, uh, boyfriend actually asked me this question last night about what I what research I did into the heist genre for Royale, and I realized that I I didn't do very much, and that's because although the story is a heist, it's formatted more like a mystery, um, like a serialized drama TV show, and so that's kind of more what I looked into. Um, of course, there's a heavy loop on the third. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah, um, yeah. there's a heavy loop on the third influence in there. <laughs> I think that's where it started. I was like, I want this, but more explicitly gay and <laughs> with the things that I like. <laughs> yes, exactly. I- I've seen one of those movies um, and that was the only, th- that was really my only exposure to it, but I definitely get it. And the, yeah. the, Euro- the European setting. Um, and it's sort of also like, a, it's like sort of timeless and out of time as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, and that's a quality that 
we've really sought for in Royale too. And I, I don't think it's super obvious yet, but as we get into the world, um, you know, it's kind of looks like 1970s inspire, but the technology is a little ambiguous. And I just, I really liked that quality in fiction. I think it lends itself really well to a kind of episodic legacy. Um, you know, that, cause I, you know, if I did a sequel or something, I don't have to set it in the same time period. I can choose a completely different aesthetic because it was never grounded in the first place. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. 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 One of the things that's really clear here and that I've seen in other work that you've kind of teased on social media is you really have a great passion for character design and a really great Mm -hmm. skill with it. How did you approach developing the central cast for this? So character design for me, weirdly, is never a really intentional process. It's like I just get an idea for something and then draw it and then kind of fine tune it later. But, um... Royale came about because I was like the character Royale, uh, who is the, you know, the protagonist. He, um, he came about cause I was kind of like in this weird period with my career where I wasn't sure what I liked and wanted to do. And so I was doing a lot of these sort of character design exercises and there was one floating around that was like, take nine characters that you love and then just draw, design a new character based off of all of their qualities. And so Hmm. I came up with this guy that looked kind of like grumpy and small and rascally a little bit. I was like, I like that. I'm going to run with that idea. And um, yeah, I mean, I I have a Patreon, which I'm setting up again, like our launch was kind of sprung on us, so I'm not prepared, but I will have a Patreon set up soon with some behind the scenes stuff where I show some of the early character designs and how similar they are to the final and how they changed, but... Yeah, but yeah, so I don't really um, do a ton of work in character design. It just happens. I wish I had a more interesting answer for you. (laughs) No, I mean, I've seen you also do like really good sort of character mock-up sheets for, um, Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. What is the name of the not yet released or announced, but... um, Uh, The end of Baz Arcadian. Yes. I've seen you do really great sort of like character sheets and descriptions for those folks too. So, mm-hmm. and you have that yeah. classic opening here too, where it's got like the, this is the character's name, the couple things you need to know, like freeze mm-hmm. frame of them in action. Yeah. I, um, when I do character studies, it feels more like, and this is so pretentious, but it feels more like getting to know the character rather than coming up with them. Um, Cause I'm just, uh, you've probably seen some of the like, Baz Arcadian stuff that is like a bunch of characters or like one character on one sheet doing a bunch of different mundane things. Mm. And that's kind of how I approach it is I want to see how the character acts under normal circumstances. And I think that that helps provide a really good foundation to figure out how they react when those circumstances are dramatically shifted. Um, And it just, then the story kind of writes itself from there, you know, like if you know, what decision these characters are going to make and how they work with one another. It just kind of falls into place. That's neat. I am. Um, I'm really enjoying the relationship between the two main characters that we have so far. Mm. I, um, I didn't quite realize we'd be getting right into Damascus so quickly in the story structure. That was kind of neat because it sort of is this change from this like dashing solo protagonist or whatever. Uh-huh 
or, you know, to actually be more about a team. Yeah. So that was, um, that was kind of a surprise for me too, when I went into writing it, because yeah, like I think if you, if you really analyze those first couple episodes, Damascus is absolutely like an accessory that is there to get exposition Mm. from our skilled and like you said, dashing solo protagonist. But, you know, I got fascinated with their character really quickly and they are a really interesting character that comes out in layers as the story goes on. Um, and it just, you know, that's sort of the, I don't know if probably you're familiar with like Captain Easy, uh, and like, you know, the Indiana Jones format where we have this skilled protagonist that kind of swoops in and then something exciting happens around them and then they leave. Um, but it's always like the guest characters that are more interesting. And Mm. I've always really liked that format. So yeah, like Royale's name is in the title because he's kind of the instigator, but really the story is about how everyone around this you know, this um, murder and the theft and all this grand intrigue. Um, yeah. I also love how, like, there's so many stories where you have characters try to not be seen or trailing someone, but they have these very iconic mm-hmm. looks and styles. And it's like, never actually works against them. I remember, <sighs> I, God, I, I don't. I remember my dad saying this when we were watching The French Connection, and even though I don't remember seeing it with my dad, but my dad saying something like, of course they can see you're trailing them because Popeye is the only man wearing a hat. It's the 70s. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, that's true. He is the only man wearing a hat because it's the 70s. That seems like you would spot him pretty easily. You actually <laughs> play into the like, oh, he's a neat little outfit. And then you're like, suspect is wearing a brown suit yeah. with a bright orange check. <laughs> oh, hey. Um yeah, I just thought that was funny. I like the idea of, I mean, Royale as a character, he's a skin of his teeth kind of guy. Like everything, he's totally reactionary. He doesn't plan. He just jumps in and he's never had to, you know, he just always cleans up his own problems. So he's never had to plan anything. Um, and that's why Damascus works so well, I think, against him because they are much more methodical. Uh, it's mentioned in were the first couple episodes that they were a uh, private eye. And so they are much more about gathering information and Royale is acting. So they, they play off each other, I think, really well. Oh, that's yeah. really sweet. Royale's just dumb. Well, it's gotten him this far, although exactly. we do sort of see where it ends or right. some of it perhaps ends in the very beginning. Yeah. What's what's behind sort of like starting? I mean, I, that's the thing. It's interesting. It's like I want to say like, oh, this sort of starts at the end of the story with someone in court, but it doesn't actually mm. mean that that's actually the ending. I can totally see that being a fake out in certain ways. So, oh yeah. So I mean, if you look at it, it it does start out saying, okay, this happened, and then you know, one year later in Berlin. So it's more like a prologue than it is a like an in media rest thing. Mm. Sort of. You'll see. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the other things I love about the characters is how thoughtful you are about fashion and clothing, but also sort of the diversity of body types and like Mm -hmm. form for them. So it's not just, there is absolutely zero same face happening in this. And there's also (laughs) like zero same body. And so many artists are like, oh, I don't know how to draw fat people or I don't know how to draw people (laughs) who are really skinny. I just like, I'm like, really? I think you kind of made a choice. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. So I can, 
<laughs> I can provide some nuance for that because, yes, absolutely, people should be drawing more fat people and people of different bodies in their work. Um, but with Webtoon especially, there's this whole, you know, people have to draw these Webtoons really, really, really fast. And so a lot of them rely on things like 3D models or, um, you know, pre-made poses that are overwhelmingly skinny people. Um, and it, you know, that's not excusing it, of course, but but that's where it comes from, is that it is either, you know, an inability or an unwillingness to do a little bit of extra work for that. Not to say that it is extra work, but, you know, it's something that I enjoy doing. And so it's definitely, um, you know, made the process take longer because I can't use those resources. Um, but it's, yeah, I, I really like drawing different bodies. I think that even just practically as a character designer, it makes a lot of sense because that gives you unique silhouettes that are easy to spot from far away. Mm. Um, you get more of a feeling of like form and weight, you know, when people all kind of look different and interact with, with the environment differently. It just, it, it gives your story so much to lean into diversifying at all. But um, I think especially along physical lines. And also clothing. You're very thoughtful yeah. about it. And there's some great outfits. Uh, how do you Thank design? You. So Royale in Damascus, uh, I hired a costume designer for these first few episodes um because oh, at the wow. time yeah at the time which was like two years ago is when i <laughs> drew those first three and then we took a big break so i could write it uh, and then we came back to it but um i hired someone because i just really was not confident in my ability to design clothes and i just started studying and um, now it's like a whole part of my personality so that was hmm. really fun but um but i'm curious to hear like what is um what you th see in the clothes that is so striking to you like why is it um if that makes well, sense i love a good suit mm. and you have a few different ones like you actually are like okay one of your characters is got the it very much reminds me of bowie's um suit from the young mm. americans era mm -hmm. which is like the striking blue and it's got the um the pleated front, the pleat front pants, which is the kind of thing that either like really works on somebody mm -hmm. or really doesn't. And it definitely really works on this character. Um, okay. I mean, like the whole look, including with their hair. I mean, their hair is like orange, which is definitely not Bowie's hair in that moment, but is a throwback to Bowie hair <laughs> from an earlier yeah. period of time. So like definitely see the visual influence there. Love the embroidery on Damascus with like this really sort yeah. of eighties culture club hat situation. Um, and, you know, like, and then, but then you have um, more seventiesness, really, in Royale's outfit. You know, like, like there's a thoughtfulness to the tailoring and to the shoe choices, um, the shoe silhouettes, even. Yeah. Like. So that was yeah, that was mostly Eric who was our designer for that this first round of costumes, and um, but you know he worked off of a Pinterest board that I put together, so it was you know collaborative, but. Eric definitely was the one who designated the tailoring because that was something that really eluded me at the time as I like couldn't mm -hmm. figure out how to draw different kinds and fits of suits. So having something to draw off of, like to reference that was specific to the character helped a lot. And, um, you know, in those two years since we started, I think that you can notice like from episode three to four, uh, there's 
in four, there's so much more of an understanding of like drapery and how fabric moves in space, which is great because that's the first fight scene. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. if I didn't understand the physics of clothing, it wouldn't have turned out so nice. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, and you can see there's like a world of difference between um, uh, like Eric, the superintendent's pleated pants and the mysterious mm-hmm. stranger's pleated pants. Like it's not even... It's not even doing right. the same thing, you know? Yeah, because we've got, like, grandpa pleated pants, and then we yeah. have, again, high, yeah, like, 80s. High fashion pleated yeah. pants. And I just, yeah, it's really cool. I don't know how how much you want to go there, so tell me if you're like, no. But there was a thread on Twitter where people were debating different approaches to drawing trans characters in your oh, art yeah. with body types and styles okay. and if if this is something that you're cool to talk, I mean, I, I don't want to speak ill of the original thread, but I, I think it, you know. Yes. So I have a very sort of like, I've come to a very nuanced conclusion about that. I'm comfortable talking about it, um, you know. Go for it. And it I think you. it would be fun and interesting. You know, yeah, it's it's sensitive because you, when you go into it, you don't want to be referencing stereotypes or unintentionally, you know, kind of try to misgender somebody by... Um, you know, adding body cool anyway. Yeah, it's it's a whole mess. But um, I, f- I find that for me, I just I just trust my gut with it. I think of people that I know in real life. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Damascus is a really important character to me along those lines because they are trans feminine and non-binary and um, do very little to try to pass. And, you know, that's sort of, been my relationship with my transition as well uh, is that I, you know, have done the things that make me feel good and, you know, trying to not think about how I look or whatever, you know, it means that sometimes people don't gender me correctly, but it doesn't matter because I'm for me. Anyway, mm. that's totally tangential, but, but yeah, it's definitely something that I figure into my work, um, you know, as even as trans people, you know, we're not exempt from that internalized stuff. So, you know, I think it's uh, for people who are transitioning sort of along the binary from quote unquote one side to the other, you know, I think it's important for us to really question if we idealize cisgender bodies, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we're drawing characters, I know that so much of it is just, you know, projection and infantasizing, um, you know, but it's really, I think it's good and constructive to have a variety of bodies, whether or not they quote unquote pass or not and you know i think again it's just um a problem of not having enough characters in the mix and not having mm-hmm. enough diversity because there's no one correct or incorrect way to draw a trans person but if you draw them the same way every time and they just look cisgender then you know i don't know if that's coming from a good place um yeah 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 I, you know i i think that like there's this also this like thread of Seeing so many people do a bad job with certain kinds of representation, trying mm-hmm. to correct it by putting together like, look, here's how I approach it. But then it gets can be kind of reductive when, you know, frankly, so much of the answer is you all need to do more work. Mm-hmm. And more work includes more research and talking and looking and studying people and conversations and more representation. And it can't just be fixed by like, here's your guide to this, that or the other. Right. Um, I think. Personally, what I think what happened with that was that 
that's great material to present and at like a sensitivity meeting kind of thing privately like to a company that knows they need to work on this stuff and they're going to sit and take notes putting it out publicly i think was immensely triggering mm. for a lot of transgender people and so you know when you are triggered you you know feel attacked and and it's really hard to ground around that and understand like what the intention was um you know, and it just really hurts. And I definitely, when I was looking at the slides, it made me really uncomfortable. It made me feel self-conscious, um, you know, because I was like, oh, okay, you know, I would, you know, you're evaluating yourself along those lines. So mm. I, th I think that the material is good because it's correct. Um, you know, there are differences in different bodies along the hormone spectrum, but um, I think it was, you know, sort of maybe inappropriate to blast it out like that and um especially the way that the uh, some of the original tweets were formatted is it just showed the drawings out of context oh boy that's never doing which, anybody any favors yeah so uh, i think that it was more of an issue with the release of it than the um than the actual material and people might disagree with me on that and that's totally fine um that's just you know personally how it affected me and how i've come to terms with its existence gotcha yeah i you know you mentioned like for like a company to have an internal presentation and i'm like wouldn't that be the day like I, right <laughs> <laughs> well having intentionality never. i um never I, a friend of mine who was on the show a while back um desiree rodriguez was like she was doing some line editing for Lion Forge, and she was like, hey, guys, what if in order to keep us from whitewashing skin tones, we had permanent color guides for our characters? And people were mm. like, oh, that's great. And I'm like, please, other publishers do this. Please, other publishers do this. Mm -hmm. I don't think any other publishers done that. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, like you can have internal things set up to try to address some of these things, but there's just no there's there's a lack of will in a lot of places still, unfortunately. Yeah. That just makes so much sense to me to have skin tone guides or just to have color guides. I mean, you have color guides for branding colors, mm -hmm. costume colors. <laughs> I think that other, you know, all of the colors should probably be in there. Eye color, hair color, everything. Yeah. Color palettes. And you do such mm -hmm. an interesting job of dealing with different skin colors responding to different colors of lighting and atmosphere around them. Like you have a lot of complicated colors on top of colors happening with rendering characters of color here. Yeah. So that's uh, Hank Jones is our colorist and that is mm. all, that is all him. When you're working digitally, how are you, how does a colorist work with digital art? I guess. I just make the line work and then I hand him the layered file. He goes mm. in there and, you know, Photoshop or Clip Studio, I think is what he uses and um, colors underneath it. But um, something we start we started doing in the later episodes, like maybe after seven or so, is I stop drawing backgrounds and I start just painting them in blocks of color instead. And so for those ones, I do lay down the value. So like you know, they're in grayscale. From you know, the things that are supposed to be dark are dark, and the things that are supposed to be light are light. And Hank chooses the palette for that, and then that also helps him determine kind of like where the light is coming from but he's like he is incredible with light and that's why you know i was really excited to have him on this project is because it's about a painting that glows light is really important mm. and um you know you'll 
you'll notice as the series goes on uh, that, you know, every scene he chooses such an intentional palette that has, you know, temperature and atmosphere to it. Like you can feel the quality of the air if it's, you know, dank in a basement or if it's like, (laughs) you know, cloudy outside and misty and rainy. Um, Yeah, I I would really invite people to look deep into the color because I think that's kind of an overlooked part of the craft in comics creation. It's still kind of in some circles thought of as a technical thing. But I mean, apart from just saying, you know, this character has like this skin tone and this hair color and likes these colors to wear, you know, everything else is him. So, but yeah, he's really good with light and how it interacts with different materials. That's really beautiful and pays off. And um, yeah, love having some of the specialization from folks who really know how to do it. So Mm -hmm. I love collaboration. That's like, I I was trying to get into film before I got into comics and then I Mm. fell in love with comics and I like them more now. But uh, that was one of the things that really attracts me to production in general is is just having a lot of different people who are putting all of their strengths together to make something that's just like, you know, unimaginable um, to an individual. So, yeah, I, you know, we, we don't get paid a ton in comics and that's kind of, you know, not a secret. And, you know, there's not a ton to go around, but like, I, I think that we get so much better work through working with each other than than I would just on my own. Absolutely. So how did you, you said you were making comics since you were six. How did you get into the comics mm-hmm. medium and like what brought you interested when, when you were six? Yeah. So I didn't have any comic book people in my family at all. Uh, like I said, media was kind of throttled. Um, so like, you know, we were superhero comics and stuff we didn't really have around, but we did have the Sunday newspaper and so every Sunday I read the comic strips on the back of the paper and I just fell in love with them. I don't, I don't know what it was. Um, I was, I was so drawn to it and I, you know, read all of them every week and I just had started drawing my own. And, um, I think that, I think the first time that I was really like, I thought that I was going to get serious about it was when, um, uh, my mom was reading my brother, Captain Underpants. Hmm. which had just come out then um, for the first time. You know, it's had like a comeback now. But, you know, in that story, there are two boys, George and Harold, who are in like, you know, third grade or something, maybe fourth grade, and they make comics together. And that was the first time that I had ever seen a child making a comic book. Hmm. And I was like, oh, crap, I can do that. Okay, cool. And so I, you know, with my friends had started making comics and trading them and doing that stereotypical thing. And I just went from there, uh, got into manga around middle school when I really wanted more complex stories and themes and then, um, kind of got more into the, you know, European stuff, Franco-Belgian and then graphic novels more into like college and adulthood. Who are some of the, what are some of the works that you really love? Um, one of my longtime favorites is Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley. That's one that I always mm. have on my bookshelf and I kind of like treasure with my life. I won't lend it to anybody, which is rare. <laughs> and I think it's because um, this, the story is 
the the art style is you know Brian Lee O'Malley. It's very cutesy, uh, but the story really brought me to tears. Like it's just really complex emotionally, and it has to do with with regret and and growing up, um, not from a teenager's point of view, but from an adult's point of view. And you know, I probably read it when I was like twenty two or something, and you know, the character just kind of goes from being this self absorbed jerk to, um, you know, trying to figure out how to live their life sustainably. Um, and it just really struck me emotionally. So I have that one around a lot. Uh, you know, Lupin the third, of course, like monkey punch stuff, which, um, has not aged well. I, I will preface the books have not aged well at all, mm. but, uh, the cartooning is great. Um, yeah, I mean, I have kind of a, you know, rotating stuff that I like. I'll, I'll always read Hellblazer, uh, Preacher, and just, you know, Dylan's drawing in general has been pretty influential. But it's like all I over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely see like Hellblazer influence through a lot yeah. of a lot of the work. Yeah. And the next thing I'm doing is very Hellblazer. <laughs> wait, wait, can you tell us about it? <laughs> Um, it, we're working on it. It's, we're going to, we're going to get it printed. We're going to get it published. Um, but I can't really say much more beyond mm -hmm. that, except that I'm, I continue to write and draw and have a big word document full of jokes that I have to figure out how to, you know, weave into the story so that it's funny. But that one's going to be, uh, so it's called the end of Baz Arcadian. And, uh, that one's for a little bit more mature of an audience and it's, definitely more hellblazer it's grosser it's got more sex in it it's just like filthy <laughs> that's great there's <laughs> definitely a space and need for that yeah. me i need it <laughs> that's certainly a, a driver between art is like this thing that i wish existed i guess i have to fucking make it don't i exactly like okay well if you want something done well you might as well do it yourself yeah. And I've just been, I've just seen this piece sort of being in development and snippets of it on social media. And it looks like it's going to be really fabulous. So I really hope so. Thank you. I, yeah. I'm just trying to, I just try to have fun with whatever I'm doing and try not to worry about it being good or not. <laughs> that's what editors are for anyway. So, right. Exactly. And that's like, that's why I don't self publish to be totally honest, is I, I don't do well without someone, without being on a leash of some kind. Mm. I need someone to be like, that's not actually a good idea, Emmett. That's a really stupid idea. And it's not funny. And you should do something else. I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. I mean, also for me, it's just sort of like, I have too many ideas and I want someone to help me trim yeah. stuff down. Like I love handing in an, an essay or a review or something to an editor and I'm like, I know this is too long for anybody to read it. Yes. Please just please help me get this down to a size where I can have more people read my work because I care about that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I process information very verbally. And so the first draft I write of anything is just every single word that pops into my head about it. And it it takes a lot of trimming down to to find the brevity in there. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um... I think I was talking with Kieran, just Kieran Gillen, just like mm -hmm. Monday, and he was saying he thinks he writes twice as much as he needs to for any given project. Basically. Oh, yeah. 
God, yeah. I think that's normal with writers because I think we need to write in order to understand things. Mm. And so we have to write it until we understand it and then we can move forward and, you know, present it in a format that is uh, comprehensible to another human being. And a heist story is like you have to have it lean enough to be able to build tension. And I, at least I think like maybe mm -hmm. maybe those things aren't interrelated. I don't know. But that definitely seems like a hard piece yep. of it to me. Yeah. Writing a mystery is really, really hard. And I at some point in my life was like, I'm never going to write a mystery. That's too hard. Hmm. And then I did it. <laughs> I, was, uh, I think I'd wanted to do it because it's hard. But you're absolutely right. Like there is so little fluff in any of the story stuff. Every piece of dialogue is there for a specific reason, whether it relates to a plot thing coming down the line, or if it's like foreshadowing, or if we're learning a really important detail about the character. Uh, yeah, every shot and piece of and word that's in there and expression is just like dead on intentional. Um, you know, at least I, I intended it to be intentional. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think that people lock on to that. And I think that it's a really good quality to have in a mystery because, you know, once you start to build this rapport with the reader, you know, that they understand that everything is important, they pay better attention and get more engaged with it because they know that, you know, you're respecting their time. So yeah, you're totally right. Yeah. I just, I feel like I, I'm happen to be making an attempt to write something that that wow. isn't a critical essay. Oh my God, shocking. Um, that I like would love for it to function as a high story and mm -hmm. building the tension around that and like having yeah. that sort of drive the action is the hardest piece of it for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The character stuff is really easy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I can sit here and write characters talking for hours and hours. Yeah. Um, I think that the Webtoon format kind of forced me into figuring that out because it's a weekly update schedule. You kind of have to plant cliff cliffhangers of some kind at the end of every episode to try to get people to come back next week. And so it really just forced me into this rhythm of like build tension and cut. And then, you know, next episode, resolve tension, build tension, cut. And you just kind of get in that ebb, of, ebb and flow of things. And it really naturally, I think, helps pace. Hmm. Do you come into it saying, I know what the answer needs to be and the challenges that he's going to have to, or that the characters are going to have to overcome to, to win or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I have pretty much the whole story put out into beats, you know, kind of like, um, key moments. Uh, but I write the script as I go because the characters change, you know, and their motivations become more clear as you go along. But yeah, all of, all of the specific challenges, the things that the characters have to overcome, there's like an incredible, I, th I think anyway, to me, it seems like an insane amount of um, like tactical planning on my end for all of this stuff. But, but like you said, like, I think you need that in a mystery to keep mm. people hooked. Yeah. I have to notice you wrote on Twitter at some point, you're like, please let me tell you about Preacher. And I was like, <laughs> you know, like in general, like, which I, I relate yeah. to because like I had this moment this winter, I was like, 
I have my own comics and pop culture content podcast, but nobody invites me on their show to talk about music. Please let me talk about, at you about music. And then thankfully, yes. the wonderful folks at Is It Camp were like, hey, our podcast isn't necessarily about music, but you can talk about music on our podcast. I was like, okay, can we talk about David Lee Roth and Van Halen and how that's completely camp? And they're like, yeah, like, great. You know, yes. so I'm like, okay, can I be for you? Like, it's funny because I'm not a, I'm not a big preacher person. I'm like, okay, but like, you're like, you want to tell people about preacher, like, tell me about preacher, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is going to damage my credibility, but I, I mean, like I, I mentioned earlier, I didn't grow up on American comics, like at all. Mm-hmm. That was kind of my last thing that I got into. And so, uh, or I guess you could debate if preacher is an American, it feels American to me in spirit. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I was like, all right. And for preparing for Baz Arcadia and the next thing I'm working on, I really needed to get into that canon of, uh, dude comics from the eighties and nineties. And, you know, so Preacher of course is, was on that list and I had watched the TV show and really enjoyed it. And my expectation going into the series was that it wasn't going to age well. And there's an, a lot of ways it doesn't. But it was so more infinitely layered and fascinating to me, especially as a piece from the lens of like American masculinity um, and the generation of men coming after the Vietnam War and how the trauma from that, you know, was passed down to create this like version of masculinity that was, was really cruel and you know, physical, it's survival oriented in a way that it totally doesn't need to be. Uh, but that is just woven into this, this book. And, and the characters ask so many questions about this kind of stuff. You know, there's a whole arc where Jesse Custer, you know, things are getting serious and he's worried about his girlfriend, Tulip, who's an amazing character. Um, I think way more compelling in the book than in the show. Mm. Uh, which is wild because I, I love Ruth Nega and she did amazingly, mm-hmm. but the casting was amazing and the actors were incredible. But it's I think that they really lost a lot in translation. Um, but anyway, yeah, so you know, yeah, yeah. So Jesse's worried about his girlfriend Tulip, and but she's like a badass. You know, she can handle herself. She has a gun. She's cool. <laughs> but you know, he's like, I don't know what it is. Like men, we just feel like we have to protect women, and and he's like, I know you can handle yourself, but if something happened to you. Like, I would die. And I thought that that was, especially for the time period and for the brand of masculinity, this like John Wayne-esque stuff that's attached to this book, I felt that was an incredibly profound insight that he, you know, for one, he, he feels this way, this really intense visceral way about protecting this person he loves. He understands that it's not coming from a place of logic because he knows she can handle herself. But he also understands that it would destroy him to lose her and that he is making a choice to, you know, to accommodate himself emotionally in that way. And whether or not that's actually healthy is debatable um, because it drives them apart and she, you know, doesn't leave him alone anyway. She gets involved anyway. But um, it's just the series is just riddled with little moments like that of just a couple pages long of characters saying a lot of like really stuff that you know you it makes me think of a 24 year old like staring at the stars like trying to figure out what the meaning to life is 
you know, it's that kind of that kind of vibe of just like thinking a lot about the universe and your place in it and, you know, why they're why you seem humans seem to be so smart, but we make such brainless decisions sometimes. Um, and that's that's really what has stuck with me. And and yeah, there's it's just really juicy when you're looking at masculinity and and how trauma has informed what we call toxic masculinity. Uh, as a transgender man, like it has been really healing, I think, for me to read because you're you're seeing where this is coming from, like this legacy of masculinity. And it yeah, it was healing to read, I think, um, because I've known men like Jesse Custer in real life and they're not pleasant to be around and they're horrible. Yeah. And that's the kind of masculinity that my my dad, who is a who is not like that, he's my dad is a very gentle man and he's very generous and very tender and sweet. But that's the kind of masculinity that he grew up with that he idealized. Mm. And so, you know, but it it ended with me because I was not born, um, quote, as a boy. So I, I got to skip all that programming and I get to look at it from the other side. So it's been really valuable to me. Mm. And, um, you know, in creating more stories for men that are coming from genres dominated by men, I think that that's really important to to go through that and um, just understand like you know where some of these tropes or archetypes are coming from and and how to you know dissect them in a way that's like interesting and adds something to the conversation yeah i i mean i think like to an extent you know being a queer person means that you spend more time thinking about gender than yeah. a lot of street, and it's like unfathomable like i don't know it's one of those like how 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 do people have unexamined lives in these ways is confusing to I, I just don't understand and you know i yeah. i definitely know that there's periods of time where i might think more or less about it and certainly be periods of time where you're just like please don't look at me that would be irritating <laughs> yeah. um but to not be considering these things as a so strange yeah yeah i i pretty journey. regularly pretty regularly have the epiphany that like people really are out here spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a movie and not thinking about how it affects the world <laughs> right it's wild yeah. to me they just put it out they're just oh this will make money you know and, and nobody's really thinking about how this is actually like you know if if millions or billions of people look at this thing and get information from it like what information are we giving them is that responsible <laughs> well i mean the struggle there is that like you know i you know people's ability to misinterpret art is just oh, shocking yeah. how good they are at it and you know i i struggle to not try to over psych myself about people trying to take things the wrong, wrong, wrong way because like mm. you said like somehow there are people who read x-men and are bigots and you're like i don't know what right. like for all the problems with like everybody is thin and conventionally attractive mm -hmm. and like and when they're not they slowly draw them to be more and more so for all of those problems yeah, no. like it's still sort of like the text is telling you not to be a bigot but yet somehow so like people can read mm -hmm. you know fight club is hugely popular among like sexist men yeah, and i'm like look you literally example. don't understand what this movie is about like what i'm I, my most viral tweet was me saying basically like fight club is feminist and most people don't understand that. And mm -hmm. it blows my fucking mind. 
it happens on a mass scale and it's, it's certain pieces of it are like, you know, beyond, beyond our controlling, which mm -hmm. is terrifying, kind of. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with you. Um, and that's 100%. And I definitely, in my work, am not really agonizing so much over how it's received. I think that it's just good to, to have an intention. Um, just in everyday life, everything I try to try to be more intentional with. But I think too, that that's kind of a structural issue with a good versus evil dynamic. Um, where you have like a, you know, a victim and then a, a perpetrator of some kind, because people are always going to cast themselves as the, as the victim, no matter what mm -hmm. the subtext is. So um, we've really so, learned. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think that honestly, and I could go into good versus evil stuff forever and ever, but, um, I don't like good versus evil stories. Mm. Uh, I, yeah, I think there's, you have a really hard time trying to get people to understand that they're the bad guy in a situation if you if everyone is framed you know if someone's framed as a good guy and a bad guy no one's ever going to think they're the bad guy is that what sort of appeals about the heist genre for this or um the the heist stuff was more just i thought it was fun genre is always like a a playground for me to uh engage with like complex things that i'm still figuring out um, a lot of the writing process for me is emotionally processing things or concepts that I can't understand. And so I just play with them, you know, in this format, um, the structure, and it just helps me make sense of <laughs> the universe and people, especially um, because, you know, we haven't really touched on, you know, neurodivergence stuff at all. But, you know, I've had to study people to understand them because I just don't, you know, I'm not wired like most people are. So, um, you know, it's a great place for me to experiment with those things, but, um, yeah, I think that, I think that the nuance just maybe comes in more on the mystery side of things because so much of mystery is perception is not reality. And I really love that as a theme. And so, you know, the, the mystery itself and the whodunit angle, I think really, really invites readers to, to think um, about characters and their roles and things and their decisions with more nuance, you know, because they're thinking about it and theorizing and trying to understand, you know, motivations um, in a really more explicit way. And I think that it's a it's a great way to get people to to empathize um, or give other kinds of people room in their brains to have to think of empathy. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Um, definitely. I, you know, so you mentioned something about talking about neurodiversity and I've seen something in some people's sort of original character design type things where they feel like they have to specify like which specific diagnoses mm -hmm. certain characters have. And it makes me want to like <laughs> just scream because i don't like i mean the point of mm -hmm. as far as i'm concerned as a person who's been in therapy for most of their life the point of a diagnosis is to make insurance pay for your treatment it's not like a specific <laughs> label actually perfectly maps to a particular like in a in a in, when we have medicare for all and we have like a post-scarcity economy like i i just mm -hmm. like these labels are to make insurance pay for your treatment i'm sorry i don't know yeah that's my take on it 
So I get where you're coming from, but you also have to understand that autistic people love to sort and label things. And I think that that's True. all that's going on <laughs> is we want to have like bullet points for characters. We don't want to write, you know, like a ton of stuff. And I definitely have sheets of my characters that are full of bullet points that says, you know, you know, Damascus is autistic and here's how that manifests. Mm. But I'm just not showing it to anybody. I'm just demonstrating it through story instead. Um but yeah, I, I pretty much like for myself have a rule that anyone who is not professionally creating comics, if they show me their OC, I'm not allowed to be mean about it or Legit. hate it in any way. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's I'm true. Like, I you mean, put yeah. whatever pronouns you want on there, whatever diagnosis, your character is schizophrenic and it's not actually accurate, but that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's good to have the pronouns so that I'm like using the right, right. one and talking like that much. I definitely appreciate. And you actually had a good list of that for your for some of your for your characters when you sort of put out together yeah. release. I'm like, <laughs> so I know it's not obvious. That's pointed out to me on the comments a lot that nobody can tell what gender anyone is. And I'm yeah. just like, oh, yeah, that's just me being like trans and, and bisexual. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, just for me, it's sort of keep the pronouns on the sheet just because then I can refer to them properly. But yeah, I, mm -hmm. but you get what I'm saying, though, on this. It's like, Absolutely. And I, okay. I do think that there's been this weird, you know, the labels existed, like you said, to help accommodate, <laughs> to be like, OK, so this person, their needs are not being met. And this is why. So and then this is the needs that they need to have met. And that's the purpose of the diagnosis. Um, but people, and not just neurodivergent people or people who are diagnosed with this stuff, but everybody seems to ex accept diagnoses as fact, as if this is just like a fact of nature that there's an autism brain and a an holistic brain and that they are totally different. And yes, you're going to see differences in, in brain activity because of just wiring, but there's not like a gene that makes that happen. It's not, it's not like a disease. It, it just is supposed to kind of help you help give you the tools to understand um you know your brain because you know we were lied about our brains for so long we were told we're lazy or that mm -hmm. we're weird we are weird but are told all of these mean things about brains which are totally fine and so it, you know a diagnosis should set somebody free it should be a descriptor not a definition mm, that, i yeah. like it but also, you know, autism is a huge part of my personality. I talk about it all the time, and I'm sure some people think I'm, like, being on the nose or whatever. But it's also, like, I don't know. That's how things are. Yeah, I mean, if it works for you, then it's an amazing mm -hmm. tool. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. that's, then it's, that, then that's actually working, right? Yeah. I will say that when I was first diagnosed, which was as an adult just a few years ago, that there was a period where I felt like totally hopeless that so many of the, mm -hmm. basically I felt that the problems that I had come in with to diagnose because I was diagnosed now, it, I felt like that was telling me that these were not fixable in any way. And I think that wow. for a lot of people, if they are say diagnosed with a, with an anxiety disorder, a lot of them might just sit there, especially if they're depressed and already, <laughs> you know, feel hopeless. You know, I think, I think it's a totally natural response to sit there and be like, wow, I'm just, I have an anxiety disorder. I'm going to be anxious all my life. And that's not true. Um, you know, if you don't have the resources to get better, then that's not going to happen. But it has, 
you know, nothing to do with you and your brain and your ability and everything to do with capitalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I don't know. It's complicated, but. Yeah, it is. And it's, you know, sometimes I hesitate to talk about this stuff publicly because I'm not a doctor, um, you know, but I have done a ton of research and I've been in therapy and recovery for like six years now. So I know myself at least. Well, it's one of the things I really appreciate about the younger generation is I'm part of the generation where a ton of people were getting help and a ton of people are getting therapy and treatment. But if you talk mm -hmm. about it, you're going to experience workplace discrimination that will prevent you from being employable. And yeah. that is still a problem, but not in the same way it used to be. So whenever I see young people talking about these things, my, you know, my traumatized older person brain is like, you all are going to be discriminated mm -hmm. against at work and no one will employ you. Um, mm -hmm. which is all, of course, also how I feel about people about talking about all kinds of things that in their lives. I'm like, oh my God, nobody will employ you. You're setting yourself up to not be able to have a job <laughs> for completely bullshit reasons because I know you can completely handle this job. Oh my God, you're going to get discriminated against. It's going to ruin your life. But now I feel like, yeah, I can like talk about mental issues or whatever. And, you know, I mm -hmm. think part of it is like, I am secure enough in my career that I don't actually worry about my employability anymore, to be honest. Yeah. Um, when that is part of it is like getting older and more established, but also part of it is like, you young kids, you made it so that they can't just say we won't hire anybody with any mental things because all of you are out about it. So good luck hiring someone without it, motherfuckers. Um, you know, and that's true for so much like gender stuff and sexuality as well. Like you yeah. really made it easier for us to just not like be closeted about things um, when that's driven by specifically like i think shame still keeps people quiet but at least i'm not oh, yeah. as worried about being seen as like unemployable if i acknowledge that i have these neurodivergences yeah. or whatever yeah i mean like we're in a really incredible time uh, i mean a decade this is paying decades of work paying off right now of of activists and it's just all suddenly poured like poured into culture within the last five or ten years that now there are like non-binary children everywhere i love them yeah i'm, so happy. I'm like oh i think the f the first time like a child or a teenager showed me they're like oc and they had pronouns and stuff on there and the like the character was non-binary i like I think i cried because mm -hmm. i had never seen that before that was like yeah maybe five years ago maybe longer now covid like sucked two years out of my entire lifetime yes, and they did. like didn't happen yeah <laughs> And people express frustration with specific young queer parts of fandom that will do certain tendencies that older people, we might be like, please stop. But I am so thankful for them. Guys, you know, as an, <laughs> as an older queer person who's been out since like 1995 or six or something, I don't fucking know. I still get so much from intellectual work and emotional work and advocacy work being done by like mm -hmm. really young kids in online spaces even that has helped me understand myself even though I was sitting there talking about like gender and sexuality in, in college before they were born I've still mm -hmm. benefited from them doing it and just you know I just need them to also you know harass at people for que other queers for doing quote-unquote bad representation you know oh yeah <laughs> but it's like <laughs> but like thank you guys for like sorting these things out you know it's Mm -hmm. it's great I think those, you know those are two different groups of people there's people who hop onto you know cyberbully campaigns to harass queer people for not being perfect um and then there's groups of people i think who who do more you know advocacy work and 
or just mind their own business. But, but it's also, it's not just advocacy work that we like, it's a lot of it's a critical analysis too. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. isn't, you know, like, like I've seen stuff written by younger people or it's like, oh my God, I relate to that. That's crazy. I never put mm-hmm. that together, even though I've been sitting with these things since before they were born. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, absolutely. It's pretty amazing because, you know, I like to think I live mm-hmm. a, you know, pretty well-considered life, but um, <laughs> it's like the, the kids still blow your mind. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, they're incredible. I don't I know that, you know, people have issues with the teens, quote unquote. But I think by and large, like this is a, an incredibly powerful group of people, like, you know, queer generation that we have brought up. And that yeah, by and large, they're doing incredible things. Yeah. I just want them to know that like old people, or at least me and my peers, are very happy to be in dialogue with them. And Yeah. I'm very much like, I'm just happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I think a lot about, I don't know if you remember the, or if even we're party to, the Tumblr post in which a hive mind of young queer people invented the queer coffee shop. And I was like, I love this because it shows you how necessary this is. But also, guys, these literally existed. Can I tell you <laughs> these basic things about queer history that you've been denied because our educational yeah. system is is homophobic? Like, you have demonstrated yeah. the societal need for this thing to exist, but also let me show you, like, this picture mm-hmm. that was taken with a camera of me in the 90s in front of a queer bookstore. Like, well, we called and it a gay is, bookstore back then. Yeah, that is, and that's our job as people who have been here for longer. Um, you know, the new people's job is to tell us the new information, and we, the, I'm not old, but <laughs> the older people's no. job is to give them the old information. Yes. And that's, <laughs> that's really it, you know, because, yeah, they don't have, you know, we say that, oh, the internet gives you all this access to information, but if you don't know what to search for, yeah, you're not, you know, that's not accessible, you know, so yeah. they're not, they're not taught it, they don't have access to it, um, and, you know, it's up to us to you know, help them connect with the previous generations and build on the tools that we had. And especially when they're told, like, certain things don't exist, why would they look for mm-hmm. it, right? Right. I, I, I'm I really sad that we haven't had in-person FlameCon for a few years because um, mm-hmm. that was always one of my favorite spaces for connecting with different generations of queer people. I've actually never one. been. Well, it is back in person this year, and I probably can't go because it's during my works conference, which is like mm. the one thing that I can't not right. be. <laughs> so I'm like, God, okay, damn it. But um, <laughs> yeah, if you, you know, I mean, obviously the state of play of COVID in society is constantly in flux. But if if folks are in a space where they feel comfortable going to a thing in August, FlameCon is magical, at least for me. <laughs> I know. You <laughs> I've know, heard it's would, magical, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody has different feedback about experiences about whatever. But, you know, for me, I was like, there's so many queer people from different gender. I mean, it's tending towards tending towards younger than me. But I've definitely seen Mm -hmm. people who are in their 60s as well, just not like as many. Oh, right. Um, I know, right? And like one of them was like, oh, my God, this is like this famous person, like famous graybeard, literally from fandom, like you know, from the seventies, who's here. It's amazing. Um, you know, to like be in one place and like in community with each other and like talk. That's so neat. I love spaces like that. So speaking of FlameCon, if you were going to develop a panel for FlameCon, the queer comics and queer geek media convention, that was an excuse for you to showcase Royale 
what would that panel be? I would be really interested, and I don't know if it would be like high level or not, um, but I'd be really interested to look at adapting genre, um, but like in a in a faithful, interesting way that doesn't rely on harmful stereotypes. Ooh, yes. If that makes sense. Because I'm thinking, yes. for instance, you know, and this is not a new concept. It's been floating around since Tumblr days, but the idea of like Indiana Jones, but not racist. And mm-hmm. it really makes you think like how much racism is built into the format of those stories, going to exotic lands, you know, dangers in those exotic lands. And it's like, you know, there's there's really a lot in some of these genre stories that that relies on really harmful, outdated stereotypes. Um, I mean, I'm thinking also like Star Wars prequels. There's weird racism in that, mm-hmm. among other things. Um, you know, gender stuff, especially when you start to get into crime, spy stuff, and it, it's just sitting there, and it's in the it's in the foundation of the story and the the tropes that you have to play with in order to make something that feels like that. But um, it's really at least I have found it sort of challenging to navigate that um, in a way that I feel is constructive. Um, Yeah. That's a great point because like you do get these stories, which for example, I'll be like, oh, we're going to do like an Indiana Indiana Jones type story, but in space. So it won't be racist. And you're like, yeah, but it actually still is, (laughs) even though it's aliens, you know? Yes. Yeah. Because we're relying on, you know, when you're designing different peoples from different lands in fiction, you humans can't make anything up we can only reorganize information we already have and and so a lot of times we rely on stereotypes from you know people that we've never met before uh you know that we've just you know seen through media or propaganda or whatever Mm -hmm. so yeah i think it's pretty meaty and i I don't know if it's something that people necessarily think of i mean like for example for uh uh, for example, in Royale, I mean, we have an antagonist that is an Asian, a rich Asian woman, and that very, very easily, I think, without intention, could be very bad. But there are, you know, really uh, intentional directions that we're taking with it to subvert it. And I've been working with like a sensitivity reader and stuff to to make sure we stick the landing. But like, hooray! Yeah, it's fun too. I I have found it to be a really rewarding process to have not really a sensitivity reader, but a consultant, like on the back end Mm -hmm. to kind of bounce ideas off of. Like, she's incredible. She's given me so much context for like why things are certain ways. Um, You know, not just, oh, this is how to not make it offensive. It's more like, how do you, you know, how do I make sure I'm understanding these things to make a compelling story, you know, that paints this person as like a fully formed human being and not just a, an archetype I'm borrowing from somebody else's story. You know, but we're also both people who are like, yes, editors, please. So if you're the kind of person who understands that we create better when we have feedback from people, then the idea of Mm -hmm. sensitivity reader is good. Thank you. I want to see what you think. I want to make this better. (laughs) Yeah. I want to learn from you, you know? Yeah. Well, thank you for joining me. What's the best way for our listeners to keep up with your work and support your work? So I am on Twitter most. I do have an Instagram, but it's, you know, I don't super maintain it because I I do so many comics that I can't really 
you know, post on Instagram because they're published somewhere. I, you know, so mm-hmm. I don't really post a lot there, but Twitter is great. I am Emmett Comics on there. That's E M M E T T C O M I X. And uh, I have a formal website, but whatever. That's not the case. <laughs> but you should read, everyone should read Royale on Webtoon because, um, because we didn't know it was launching and so we didn't get to do any social media and so we're like the lowest performing launch that week. Yes, please everybody go read it. And also with the way Help. it's set up, you can read a lot of it for free. So like you'll get you'll be hooked before they mm-hmm. ask you for money. So that's very affordable. Yeah, and then please give us money. Um, and then give you money. Exactly. That's what I have. I got I got hooked money. and then I give them money. But it's Thank like a great so long much. sample. Like you'll know what you're in for and you can make like Really yep. great informed decision and be like, yes, I'm really fucking excited about this now. So, yeah, I totally agree. You know, and it's I, I, I feel like in some ways it's a really good system for that. I mean, I want to get you as much money as humanly possible, too. But <laughs> me too. More money. Thanks for joining. And, you know, as always, this is Graphic Policy Radio. I am on Twitter a little too much at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. We will continue to have more interviews with comics creators, um, as well as host some interesting conversations with fellow fans and organizers around comics-adjacent media as these things show up in our screen. Also, I'll be back on Tighten Up the Defense. I Did I even tell folks I was on it? I was on an earlier episode of Tighten Up the Defense podcast to talk about the very first issue of the Young Justice comic book series. Because mm-hmm. when there's something that Peter David made, people supposedly want to talk with me about it now for some <laughs> mystical reason. Um, anyway, so I was on track about that. It was a blast. I'm going to be back soon to talk about the issue of Batman where we get Tim Drake introduced, which will be interesting to do. So keep an eye out for me mm-hmm. on Tighten Up the Defense, too, and listen to it because it's hilarious. And as we like to say, keep it geeky.